you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. LAist Studios. A quick warning. Some of the series includes descriptions of graphic violence. Last week on Norco 80. When we were young, he told me that he had to do something, and that was to kill somebody. He wanted to know what it felt like. They were digging a tunnel for the purpose of if a bomb hits or something. Yeah, they would talk about stuff like that. They would talk about how it's coming to an end. Deputy Rolf Parks was just over 10 miles away from Norco on May 9, 1980, when he heard a radio broadcast about armed robbers leaving a Norco bank shootout. Yeah, I had just made a car stop on somebody and I was about to issue a ticket and I hear this stuff going on and you get that chill. I mean, it's that chill that runs down your arms. Rolf raced to back up his fellow officers. He was one of at least a dozen cops on the radio channel. And so I'm trying to listen without saying anything on the air. And you hear a lot of other people talking. I'm in route. I'm around. I'm over here. I'm over there. First, I think I counted at least five suspects. I believe three got away in that yellow truck. Soon, it became clear that the robbers were headed northeast into a maze of suburbs as they tried to flee. There was no freeway that ran through Norco at the time. So to be in like the the center of town and having to get out wasn't really a good plan on their part to to escape. There would be no easy exit for the robbers. There was a cop waiting around almost every corner. Rolf heard men yelling about being hit in the leg and heading to the hospital. Deputy after deputy, just minutes apart, were reporting that the robbers were not just speeding away, they were also spraying bullets wildly from the back of the pickup at anyone who approached. The vehicle is heading on Fleischmann towards Atlanta. The three hundred twelve are heading on Fleischmann and have been hit right back. Fleischmann is heading fire. Rolf kept winding closer and closer, following the radio traffic, until he didn't need to anymore. The robbers were headed right towards him. I can hear the gunfire, and I know that there's no one else between me and and them at the time. I'm on a semi-country road. I've got a horse corral on my right, and the suspects are coming down the road. And I first see this thing. It wasn't exactly yellow. It's kind of like orange. I can see that it's crossing lanes coming into my lane of traffic. And I knew this wasn't good. Rolf saw the robbers, two of them standing in the bed of the truck, one of them leaning outside the passenger window. They raised their guns, leveling them at him. The truck, moving surprisingly slowly, rolled towards him. Rolf rolled up his side window as a last futile move. As the vehicle comes, you can hear, I mean, my my car's just getting chewed. You can hear the metal. 
boom, 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 you know, hitting, hitting the side of the car. You can hear the sound of the snapping, hitting, hitting the ground around you. You know, I'm sitting there and there's glass flying all over the, all over the cab. Shards of glass had, had flaked into really a dust and it's landing all over my face. And there's certain phenomena that just seem kind of strange because I'm sitting here and it looks like it's snowing inside my car. I'm Antonia Cerejido, and from Elias Studios and Futuro Studios, this is Norco 80, a series about God, guns, survivalism, and the bank robbery that changed policing forever. Chapter 4, The Final Chase. What we're trying to do is hit the engines on the police vehicles to stop them. Uh-huh. To stop the police vehicle. I wasn't trying to kill people. After they left the bank, the robbers' escape plan was to reach their getaway cars. They had set them up before the robbery in a parking lot of a Little League field, about a mile away. George would later tell the detective about their exit. And just a reminder, these are the actual recordings that police made questioning the robbers right after they were captured. Okay, then you guys went from, you got in a truck, all of you? Who got in a cab of the truck? Chris drove. Chris drove. And the three of us, uh, Manny, Russ, and myself, defended the, the vehicle. Chris Harvin drove the yellow truck with Manny in the passenger seat and Russ and George standing in the bed. The hope was that if they could ditch the stolen truck for their own cars, they could lose the cops. But as they approached the lot, the money long gone, they could see police cars in their periphery and realized they had to change course. And so as they drove through the surrounding neighborhoods of Norco, they tried to come up with a new plan. What were you thinking about? Oh, this was going on. A detective would later ask, what was going through Chris's mind? Well, this is going on. Yeah. Getting going away. Getting away. Getting away. Wishing I hadn't done a job. Chris responded, getting away. Wishing I hadn't done the job. But at that point, while they were desperately trying to escape, they had no plans to surrender. You know, George's motto is, I'm not going to be taken prisoner, right? Chris said George's motto was that he wasn't going to be taken prisoner. A few seconds after the glass and the dust fell around Deputy Rolf Parks, the robbers were gone. They had passed him. I'm checking my head, you know, to see whether I was bleeding or how bad I was. I could see that I had some blood. A bullet grazed his head, and he had been sprayed with broken glass. But somehow, Rolf didn't have any major damage. And as he assessed himself, he didn't hesitate in his next move. That fear kind of changed to anger. (laughs) I was pissed. Can I say that? You know, it's like, I was pissed, you know? And and so I I make the U-turn. He put his wreck of a car into drive and sped after the yellow truck. As soon as I got through around the corner, there they are, just blasting away at me. Just boom, boom. It's like, God, they are just hitting the crap out of me, and I'm not even near them now. They're like, they're 50 to 100 yards down the road. So I get on the air, 
And I say, you know, I'm I'm following the suspects. They are armed with uh, long rifles. And they're using them. And these guys are still pounding me. They're still pounding me. They're just shooting, shooting, shooting. Rolf tried to warn any officers ahead of him of the firepower he had just witnessed. But communication was jumbled on the radio. The robbers were firing nonstop as the yellow pickup truck blasted through a four-way intersection packed with police cars. And all of a sudden, you know, Herman comes along their side. You just see his his car just explodes. And the glass flying everywhere. Dave Madden on the uh, east side, they shoot at him. Wayne McDaniels is on the uh, west side. They shoot him through through the windshield and hit him in the shoulder. So everybody's kind of stalled except for me. In a matter of just seconds, two officers and a civilian were shot as the robbers continued through the suburbs. It was a Friday afternoon. The streets were full of kids walking home from school. As the truck barreled through, residents and children hid behind parked cars or ran to safety. As Rolf tried to follow, once again, the robbers showered him with bullets. This time, his car died. But soon, another deputy pulled over. Rolf grabbed his gun and jumped in with him. At this point in the chase, it was all hands on deck. Officers were coming in to help from all over. There were patrol cars from the Riverside Sheriff's Office, but also from the Riverside Police Department and from the California Highway Patrol. As the robbers in the yellow truck continued their spree, shooting and disabling any police car they saw, one bullet veered to the side of the road and clipped the finger of a kid who was riding a bike in the dirt. Control, was that another officer shot? I had a transporting officer in that. He's taken around in the arm to the hospital. Ambulances were on their way. At this point, a total of seven deputies were wounded. But Rolf and the other deputy kept on the chase. They'd lost sight of the yellow truck. A police helicopter was now circling above. And starts giving directions, but he doesn't know the area. He just said, they're going, they're going left, they're going right, they're going north or something. What does that mean? You know, it's like, how does that help you? You know, it doesn't help me if you don't give a name of a street <laughs> or anything like that. I don't know, where, yeah. Which way is left? Which way, what, you know? Going in circles, trying to figure out where they are. You know, because it was just a fog of battle. It was crazy. I mean, the people must have thought we were nuts. We did at least two circles. Baker, one of the people just turned northbound. I believe it's on Elwanda at this time. It's northbound. Finally, Rolf stuck his head out the window and spotted the helicopter. Following it, he headed north towards the freeway. At this point, Rolf figured the robbers had a decision to make. They could take the freeway back towards Riverside, where many cops awaited them or they could head into L.A. I was 
hoping that they were going to go into Los Angeles where the sheriffs were, because I knew that they they had a SWAT team. And uh, those were new items at the time. The LAPD had created the first SWAT team in the country around a decade earlier. The group of specially trained men, many with military experience, was established after the Watts riots, a series of violent confrontations between police officers and local Black residents. The robbers surprised Rolf when he realized they weren't headed west towards LA or east towards Riverside. As the robbers merged onto Interstate 15, he saw they were headed north. Rolf got on the ramp about a half mile behind the yellow truck. As soon as we get on 15, um, they start shooting at us again. They're, they're hitting the vehicle. Rolf and the officer he was riding with, Fred Chisholm, who was driving, needed to be careful. The weapons the robbers had were so powerful that they couldn't get too close. And uh, I told Fred, you know, get behind this 18-wheeler. Maybe they won't shoot at a civilian vehicle. Well, they shot at the civilian vehicle, and the uh, 18-wheeler pulls to the right. It's like the curtain opened, and there comes the gunshots. Man, there's just no relief. Some officers would recall being on the freeway and hearing the shots fall around their vehicles from almost a mile away. Turn your lights off, car ahead of 13 at the target. Uh, be advised, they were firing, I wouldn't get too close. Affirmative, high-powered rifle. More law enforcement joined the chase on the freeway. Officers from Ontario, Fontana, Paris, but nobody could get too close to the yellow truck without having to dodge bullets. And it was somewhere around this time that my dispatch asked, uh, can you confirm if a helicopter is being shot out of the sky? And I go, what? Can you confirm the San Bernardino chopper has been shot down? <laughs> Are you kidding me? George would tell police that they felt maybe they could get away if they could just stop the helicopter from tracking them. Where was the helicopter all this time? Uh, it was uh, watching us. Is this about the same time you guys started shooting the helicopter? Yeah, it was just that uh, we figured if we could stop the helicopter, get him away from us, we could get away. Because we figured that was what was uh, keeping everybody else hanging on us. And we pot shot it at the rotor and uh, fuselaged the tail. The helicopter, which was hovering 800 feet over the suspects, abruptly veered off. The suspects, pointing their guns skyward, had managed to fracture the plexiglass of the chopper and the titanium floor. It would be forced to land. Somebody in the back said, we got to notify Ontario to divert aircraft because, you know, they're, if they've shot a helicopter, you know, and we're coming into the glide path, they could shoot airliners as well. The police were worried that the robbers could shoot planes taking off from the nearby Ontario airport, so they shut it down. It seemed like no one could touch the robbers. They had driven off a helicopter and were holding off dozens of cars in pursuit. Kings can't get any worse, can they? Uh, they have explosives. Oh, oh yeah, they can. That's the permanent. They've thrown one explosive device out the rear only. 
Rolf saw a pop in the air as the robbers started throwing bombs out on the road behind them. George would tell police he had carried them in his pocket. I had two in my pocket. And those are the two I tried to slow down traffic with. You only threw two? I threw two. And I realized, you know, at this point there, I'm in probably the biggest law enforcement chase there ever was. And I'm the unit in front chasing these guys. But then Rolf's riot gave out for the second time that day. Our car had been hit so many times by the rifle fire that uh, our, our engine started to steam. And you could see the you know, steam rising up off of the hood of the car. And the, uh, the car was starting to buck. It became obvious that we weren't going to be able to lead the chase any further. Rolf saw the suspects take an off-ramp. And that's when he realized they were headed into the St. Gabriel Mountains towards Lytle Creek Canyon. Rolf knew then it would take something very powerful to stop them. It's like, we're the police. We don't have rifles. We have shotguns and handguns. We were calling for anything that that had a weapon, uh, a rifle or something to, like, intercede. It turns out a young officer would answer that call. We'll be right back. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAist.com sweeps. LAist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. We're back. At the time of the Norco bank robbery, officers weren't usually armed beyond a handgun and a shotgun. But that day, by a fluke, a nearby sheriff's office did have an automatic weapon. In San Bernardino County, they had an M16 in their evidence locker. We basically just kind of kept it. The department didn't know we had it. We recovered it after a pursuit, and the crooks threw it out the window. It got pretty narfed up. So we called the military and said, hey, we've got your weapon. Do you want it back? It's in pretty bad shape. And they said, no, you keep it. Deputy Sheriff Daniel McCarty, who goes by DJ, was back at the San Bernardino station when he heard about the bank robbery and ongoing pursuit. In those days, that was a very, very big deal to have an AR. I mean, we didn't have weapons like that, military weapons. a fellow officer radioed in to the San Bernardino station. I'm coming to the office, get the AR out, which means the automatic weapon that we had. DJ fetched it and went outside, ready for his fellow officer who slid into the parking lot in his patrol car. And he had reached over and unlatched the passenger door 
And while he was still moving, the door flew open and I jumped in the car. And I'm 23 years old, uh, brainless on what really happens in a shootout. The only officer in the chase armed with an automatic weapon was now making his way towards the suspects. DJ was in his early 20s when he decided to join the force. When did you decide that you wanted to join the police? 77, I started getting serious about doing it because I figured, you know, sooner or later, I'm going to wind up on one side of the bars. So I kind of like the other side. Let's unpack that a little. Why did you think that you were? (laughs) (laughs) Because uh, don't get me wrong. I had great parents. I was raised well, but I was a a hellion. Uh, The the guys that I ran with, we had uh, a gang. There was several fights between other gang members and just growing up in general while San Bernardino was growing up and unfortunately turning to crime and starting to go downhill. DJ ended up becoming a deputy sheriff for San Bernardino, the county directly north of Riverside. It is surrounded by desert mountains. Hollywood used it as a backdrop for 60s westerns. It's a place where DJ fit right in. What did you look like during that time? Glenn Campbell. Okay, for those not familiar with Glenn Campbell, describe him. (laughs) Well, Glenn Campbell was a country western singer. Like a rhinestone cowboy. Um, Had that uh, boyish look with the uh, uh, regular haircut parted on the side. Yeah, I looked like a little kid. A big little kid. But back then, DJ thought he was a real tough guy. I thought I looked like Dirty Harry. Are you kidding? I was 23 years old and happy and having a great time. DJ was assigned to work in Fontana, a tough city that was built around a steel mill. Working that beat brought DJ the same sense of excitement from his hellion days. Fontana never sleeps. It's a steel town. It's 24 hours. Trucking industry, 24 hours. Prostitution, drug sales, 24 hours. It, it, it It never stopped. But working as a police officer also gave him a sense of stability. When I got hired, they said, okay, we're going to pay you, I think it was $600 every two weeks. And I went, you're going to pay me $600 every two weeks? Yes. And I got to go start in the jail? Yeah. And you're going to feed me in the jail? Yeah. Antonia, I was in heaven. DJ had to be dragged away from police work. Uh, There was times when uh, there was several of us that were young and energetic, and they would literally, the sergeant would literally have to tell us at 12 o'clock when our shift was over, at 1 o'clock, bring the cars back, graveyards waiting to go to work. DJ had been reluctantly finishing up a daytime shift and changing into his street clothes around 4 p.m. when he heard the radio traffic and then jumped into his fellow officer's car. The four suspects were on the highway headed northbound. DJ had the rifle between his knees as he joined the chase at 80 miles per hour. I had it between my legs on the uh, Mr. Toad's wild ride, and I'm I'm looking at it, trying to figure out how to work it. DJ had never trained with high-powered rifles like this, but George and Chris shot with them frequently. They would target practice in a forested canyon called Lytle Creek. 
which is where they were leading the police that very moment. A detective would later ask Chris Harbin about why they decided to lead the chase to Lytle Creek Canyon. We thought that over the dirt roads, we could uh, elude police vehicles on that dirt road because they'd be catching a lot of dust. He said that on the dirt roads up the mountain, they could elude the police vehicles because they'd be catching a lot of dust. You get up get there, dump the vehicle, split up, and try to make it as we could. That they wanted to get there, dump the vehicle, and split up to make it as they could. The robbers were already at Lytle Creek when DJ reached the highway. He got on the radio traffic. And we were trying to tell everybody and through dispatch to pull over that we had an AR and to let us get up to the front. We had a problem because you've got CHP, Riverside County Sheriff, San Bernardino County Sheriff, and in those days, we weren't all on the same frequency. At the time, there was a radio system that let different agencies communicate with each other, but it was only installed in a handful of cars. And so communicating was like a game of telephone. Can anybody on this frequency see the vehicle? News that a deputy sheriff had an AR slowly percolated through the cop car parade hurtling up towards the mountains. They'd get the message through and guys were starting to pull over and uh, we were heading up to the front of the pack. DJ and the M16 were getting closer and closer to the robbers. We got into Lytle Creek, which goes down into a very windy two-lane mountain road. And you drive up to the end of Lytle Creek and it turns into dirt. And the dirt ending there is a free-for-all shooting area for anybody that's got a gun that wants to go and shoot it. Lytle Creek Canyon is in the midst of the San Gabriel Mountains, a wilderness area dotted with clusters of ponderosa pines and tall yucca plants. I don't know how any other way to explain this to you that it's central casting for the hills have eyes. It's it's just, it's bad. Lytle Creek Canyon was a go-to spot for criminal activity. There was a formal gun range, but many visitors would ignore it in favor of pulling up anywhere on the side of the mountain to blast their legal or illegal weapon. Stray bullets were known to hit cars, homes, or even tents set up by unassuming campers. There were horrible accidents. People died. In the late 1960s, Lytle Creek became a favorite of drug traffickers, who would move in permanently and either grow marijuana on the side of the canyon itself or cook crystal meth in bathtubs. It, it, it's a interesting little uh, community up there. But DJ had never seen anything like what he saw now in Lytle Creek as he drove on the winding dirt path. I mean, I mean, not all day long, but we're, we're passing uh, cars that were shot up. Desperate for stronger guns, officers were seizing the sidearms of bystanders who had gone to Lytle Creek to practice shooting. I remember the deputies in front of me were actually pulling rifles away from citizens to take their guns because we didn't have anything that was good. They were taking their weapons so that we could fight with them. Amid the chaos, abandoned cars, multiple frequencies, different agencies, DJ and his partner were focused on getting the one automatic weapon to the front of the chase 
in hopes of finally stopping the robbers. And at one point, he thought they made it. And then all of a sudden, this Riverside unit just cuts us off and goes in front of us. Didn't know it at the time, but that was Jim Evans. Deputy Sheriff James Evans, known as Jim, would soon face off with the robbers at the top of the desert mountain. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. We're back. In 1975, five years before the events of this bank robbery, a woman named Mary Sweeney was going horseback riding with a friend in Woodcrest, California, a town half an hour east of Norco. I was into horses when I was young. I I loved animals. I still do. After a couple of hours, they brought their horses back to the stable. At the time, Mary was in an unhappy marriage with a man who drank. I didn't go directly home. I went to the friend's house that I was riding with, and we came off the ride, and my husband was uh, under the influence, okay, and came up there and started knocking me around because I didn't come right home. And uh, so, you know, my girlfriend and her kids were screaming and yelling when they saw that. Well, anyhow, bottom line, went down to the hospital because he was choking me pretty badly, couldn't breathe. Oh, my God. And uh, so the doctor there said, has this happened before? I said, yeah, but nobody ever does anything. He said, well, you call the sheriff's department because you're out in the county. So we called the sheriff's department and Jim Evans answered the call. That's how I met him. Jim Evans was a deputy sheriff for Riverside County, an Army Green Beret and Vietnam veteran. He was originally from Texas. Well, he was six foot. His hair was kind of a sandy brown. It was nice looking, mustache, had that Texas accent. He was a real cowboy. Yeah, he wore his cowboy hat and he wore his cowboy boots. He always, off duty, he was in jeans and, you know, cowboy shirt. Mary would take her kids back east, where she grew up, to get away from her abusive husband. And while I was back there, my girlfriend, she'd stay in touch with me and all. She said, you know, that deputy, he came by a few times to see how you were doing. And I said, well, that was really nice of him. (laughs) It was weird because, you know, he said, well, can I have her phone number? So he called me up 
And so, so I talked on the phone with him and all. And then he started writing letters to me. And I started writing letters back to him. That connection was there. And we ended up getting married. Back in California, they had a child together. Mary remembers father and son the morning of the robbery. You know, he came in, he picked up the baby. And he was a chunky baby. He was 10 pounds. I'm only, I'm very small. I'm like 5'4", about 115 pounds, you know. <laughs> so he's, he's bouncing the baby on his knee, you know. And so he said to me, you know, Mary, some men never get to see their sons grow up. And I said, is there something going to happen? He goes, I don't know. It's just a feeling. Evans, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. We're still falling. After learning of the robbery, Jim Evans, who was the kind of experienced officer who rushed to any crime scene, had muscled his way to the front of the chase, his car hugging the side of the mountain as he wound his way on the narrow, jagged path in Lytle Creek. I think Evans uh, is the closest one. Jim tried to keep some distance from the yellow truck because the suspects were continuing to shoot like crazy behind them as they sped forward. And are they stationary at that point? That's the digging. They're moving. They're firing like crazy. Ten four. A helicopter hovered above, radioing down the location as best he could to the cars in pursuit. Okay, he's still moving northbound according to Trapper. Because of all the curves, the suspects were in and out of sight for Jim Evans. He feared he would round a corner and find them ready to ambush him. He asked the dispatcher to just let him know if the suspect suddenly stopped. Tell him if they stop, that's what we want to know. Okay. George would later tell the detective that their goal was simply to escape and stop the police from following them. We're in Lido Creek, and, and uh, what we're trying to do is hit the engines on the police vehicles to stop them. Uh-huh. The vehicle. I wasn't trying to kill people. The robbers would drive until the dirt road in front of them was washed out. They couldn't drive any further. Went around a corner, I take it. We kept driving until we came to the dead end. They abandoned the yellow truck. Jim was in the police car that was closest behind them. And DJ McCarty, with the air between his knees, was behind him. But Jim and DJ couldn't communicate because they were on different frequencies. All of a sudden, Jim's car, uh, Deputy Evans' car, stops dead in front of us. And we stop for a second, and we're looking, and we're going, what is he doing? I can't really see what's going on in front of Evans because of the bend in the road. Jim called into the dispatch. We're taking around. DJ realized that around the corner, the suspects had stopped their vehicle and were now shooting towards Jim Evans. I look back up at Evans and I see him jump out of the driver's side. He goes behind his unit, drops to the ground, and I remember he dropped down on one knee. Jim quickly reloaded his gun. He dumped his dead rounds out, and I remember thinking, damn, he's good, because he did it just one, two, three, reloaded his gun. And then I looked up and I saw one of them take a position on the side of the hill, point his rifle right where he went down. DJ looked at Jim crouched behind the car and thought, just don't pop up. And it was a split second. All I could think is don't get up. 
And he got up. And he took a round in the right eye, which basically killed him instantly. DJ could barely process what he had just witnessed. My world blew up. There was brain matter, blood, glass, parts of the, 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 his uh, lights on the top of his car, everything, and it's in a valley where these uh, weapons are echoing, and it was just pure terror. And uh, I just saw that Evans went down, and then they saw me sitting there, they just plastered my car. Every time I moved my arm or whatever, or did anything, a bullet went by. And I got uh, shrapnel in my face and a bullet uh, that bounced off my uh, dashboard and into my right elbow. DJ's first impulse was to dive underneath his car. I stuffed a 200 pounds, six foot two body under about five inches of a Fairmont, a Ford Fairmont patrol car, which was getting turned into Swiss cheese. He took a deep breath and tried to keep it together. He realized that in his moment of panic, he had left the AR in the car seat. And so he blindly stuck his hand up. And I reached up and started feeling around in the car. And I just grabbed the barrel of the AR that was laying on the, on the front seat. Thought to myself, okay, just get this thing working, get over the door, scream all the words your mother told you never to use and start shooting. Stand up over the, the open door and I, I just get a visual of four men in front of me. And I just started shooting. And thank God they turned around and ran. The robbers ditched the yellow truck and set off on foot into the wilderness of Lytle Creek. Seven. The sun was beginning to go down. Months earlier, Jim Evans and his wife Mary had gone to a funeral. We were up at that cemetery. And he said, I want you to know this is where I want to be buried. If I go in a shootout, and that's exactly what he said to me, then bury me in my police uniform. But if I die normally, bury me in my military uniform. I said, why are you telling me these things? And he said, because I just want you to know. And he said, if anything ever happens, make sure you always take my son to Texas. I said, I'll do that. And so... Mary, I'm so sorry. It's okay. And so I said, I'll do that, Jim. I'll do that. According to Mary, before Jim died, he had growing concerns about officer safety because of the duty that he did in Vietnam and Green Berets. 
He knew a lot about guns and everything else, so he was well-trained. And uh, he sent many memos to the sheriff that last year before he died. He, he told them, we need military assault rifles. It's almost like he could see it coming. He'd tell me, something big is gonna happen. Next time on Norco 80. When people are trying to kill you, when they've shot eight cops, civilians, robbed a bank, and they're shooting at you, yeah, I want to kill them. I don't want to, I don't want to capture them. An angry police force reacts. And one more person wouldn't make it off the mountainside alive. As we searched the area in the helicopter, we spotted yellow gloves. And uh, shortly thereafter, the suspect was down. Norco 80 is written and produced by me, Antonia Cerejido, and by Sofia Paliza Carr. The show is a production of Elias Studios in collaboration with Futuro Studios. Leo G is the executive producer for Elias Studios. Marlon Bishop is the executive producer for Futuro Studios. Audrey Quinn is our editor. Joaquin Kotler is our associate producer. Juan Diego Ramirez is our production assistant. Maria Alexa Cavanaugh is our intern. Fact-checking by Amy Tardif. Our engineers are Stephanie LeBeau and Julia Caruso. Original music by Zach Robinson. This podcast is based on the book Norco 80 by Peter Houlihan. Special thanks to Bill Crow and Paul Benoit. Our website is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Elias Studios. The marketing team of Elias Studios created our branding. Thanks to the team at Elias Studios, including Kristen Hayford, Taylor Kaufman, Kristen Muller, and Leo G. If you want to hear more Norco 80, please follow or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, the iHeart app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review the show. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com events. See you there.